Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 79, The Battle of Jamaica Plain. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're going to discuss a robbery gone wrong. It started as a simple holdup in a bar in Jamaica Plain in 1908, but soon a small group of radical anarchists were fighting hundreds of Boston police officers in a series of running gun battles across the neighborhood. The gunfights and a bloody siege at Forest Hill Cemetery left a total of 11 wounded and 3 dead. Most of the suspects escaped, only to be killed years later by British soldiers in the streets of London under the command of Winston Churchill himself. But before we talk about the Battle of Jamaica Plain, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. Since our episode this week is all about Jamaica Plain, why don't we kick it off with a featured historic site that's in JP as well. The Loring Greeno House is located on South Street in Jamaica Plain's Monument Square. The house was built in 1760 as the seat of Commodore Joshua Loring's country estate. Loring was a Boston native who had risen to prominence as a capable naval officer in King George's War, then served with distinction in the French and Indian War before being wounded and retiring. In his retirement, the Commodore was appointed to General Thomas Gage's Governor's Council in the waning days of the province's royal government. As rebellious patriots took over government of the entire province outside Boston in the summer and fall of 1774, the threat of mob violence forced Loring to take refuge in the city. During the Siege of Boston, the home was used as a hospital for patriots wounded in the Battle of Bunker Hill, then served briefly as General Nathaniel Green's headquarters. When British forces evacuated in March of 1776, Joshua Loring and his family went with them to Halifax before settling in England. They never saw their country home, or their home country, again. After the war, the home was sold and resold, ending up in the hands of wealthy widow Anne Doan. Anne soon married David Stoddard Greeno, adding his last name to her own and that of the house. Anne and David's son-in-law began subdividing the estate in 1836, though a total of five generations of Greenos lived on the land through 1924. By that time, only two acres remained of the farm that was once at least 60 acres. When the last Greeno heirs announced that they planned to sell off their ancestral home, it looked like it would be demolished to make room for more profitable housing. In stepped the Jamaica Plain Tuesday Club, which was a lady social club then, and is now a community group open to anyone. They bought the house and grounds, and have maintained them ever since. Visitors are welcome to explore the grounds during daylight hours. House tours are offered from 1 to 3 p.m. on Sundays from April to November. On Thursday afternoons in the summer, there are food trucks, a farmer's market, and musicians. And on Saturday, May 12th, there will be a celebration of the opening of the Summer Kitchen. On the website, you're invited to Celebrate the annual opening of the Summer Kitchen Exhibit and tour the recently restored main house kitchen at the Loring Greeno House. Tours will be offered of one of Boston's only remaining intact summer kitchens. The summer kitchen and laundry room were added to the main house as part of the construction of the 1811 L. The Rumford boiler apparatus, along with an ingenious circular drying rack, remain remarkably preserved from the 19th century. Join us for a reception at our 19th century farm table where we'll have free, delicious refreshments. And we'll have a link to more information in the show notes this week. 
And just in case you thought we were cheating by including an event with our featured historic site, we have a tour of Jamaica Plain for our upcoming event this week. The Jamaica Plain Historical Society will be offering a tour of the Monument Square neighborhood this Saturday. Monument Square is the area surrounding our featured historic site, and it's the area where one of the gun battles we'll discuss in this week's main topic broke out. Here's how the Historical Society describes the tour. Tour a residential area that includes a National Historic District. View architecture that spans three centuries, the oldest community theater company in the United States, and an elegant 18th-century mansion that once served as the country's first military hospital. Learn about the monument that commemorates fallen Civil War soldiers from West Roxbury, and about Pauline Agassi Shaw, who established the class that became the model for continuous free kindergarten education. We will visit a house dating to 1716 that once served as a tavern, the Elliott School, dating back to 1689, the home of the first woman to graduate from MIT, and the first church burial ground. The tour is free and reservations are not required. Meet your guide at 11 a.m. in front of the Loring Greeno House at 12 South Street, then return to it for the summer kitchen opening once your tour is over. We'll have a link to more information in this week's show notes. On Tuesday, July 21, 1908, Patrolman Butler of the Boston Police Department was walking his beat on Washington Street in Jamaica Plain at about 11 p.m. when a man named Frank Drake ran up to him, bleeding badly from a gunshot wound that had pierced his lung. He told Butler that there was a robbery in progress at the Winterson and McManus Saloon at 3171 Washington Street on the corner with Boylston Street. According to Butler's statement, I was standing at the corner of school in Washington Street about 10.55 and heard a revolver shot, followed by five others in rapid succession. I ran to the saloon and on the way heard six or seven other shots fired. Owner Thomas Winterson and bartender John Carty were serving drinks to the last five patrons when, according to the Boston Globe, just before closing, three unfamiliar men entered. As one jumped over the bar and threw the cash register to the floor, his two companions drew pistols and began firing. Winterson took bullets to the base of the skull and the left arm. Customer Patrick Doran was struck in the left side in the spinal column. A second customer, Frank Drake, was hit in the right lung. While one of the men picked up the money from the register, bartender Cardi escaped to the back room and called police station 13. With their take of $90, the three men ran into the street. After raising the alarm, Drake would die from his wound. Patrick Doran was listed in critical condition, and Thomas Winterson, with a bullet in the base of his skull, was said to be resting comfortably at home. As the robbers left the bar, they encountered Patrolman Butler, whose statement continues, When I reached the door of the saloon, I was about to enter when I saw three men firing revolvers, and one of them, the smallest of the three, turned on me and pointed his revolver at me. I dodged out of the door onto the sidewalk as he fired at me. I did not have my revolver out, and I got into a doorway in the next building to take it out, when at that moment the three men ran out of the saloon and across the street and into the lot where there are some old cellar walls. I fired at them. Someone cried out to me, Don't shoot these men. The men you want ran down Washington Street. That warning, which may have actually come from someone who was acting as a lookout for the robbers, threw Butler off the scent. Trying to catch up to the escaping gunman, he jumped onto a passing streetcar that was headed to the right, down Washington Street towards Green Street. I got onto a passing car and rode as far as Green Street, 
but could not see them in. I got off the car and jumped into a carriage that was going in the opposite direction and was driven to the police signal box at the corner of Washington and School Streets and telephoned Lieutenant Bodenschatz about the shooting and asked him to send me help. In the meantime, while Butler was riding a streetcar in the wrong direction, two witnesses chased the three men who he had shot at across the street and up Chauncey Place, now Chilcot Place, where they took a left and cut through the backyards to School Street, then down School Street to Washington, where they ran through Eggleston Square and disappeared down Columbus Avenue. I was told by a citizen that the men I had fired at were the right men, that a woman had told him that she had seen them running through Weld Ave and down Washington Street toward Roxbury. I telephoned Station 13 that fact, and Station 10 was notified. I went to the station as quickly as I could and looked after the wounded until the physicians and extra police arrived. Are you confused yet? Don't worry, we are too. We'll put a map showing the route the robbers took during that chase and the subsequent pursuits in the show notes this week. The city was already on edge when the violence escalated the next day. The Globe reported, At 7 o'clock on the evening of July 22nd, two of the Yegmen involved in the raid at the Winterston and McManus Saloon were in a running gun battle through the streets of Jamaica Plain. Wait a minute. Are you calling these guys the Eggmen? That's Y-E-G-G-M-E-N, not the Eggmen, as in the John Lennon lyric, I am the Eggman, they are the Eggmen, I am the Walrus, goo goo gajoob. From this point on, many of the news stories we looked at referred to the group of robbers as the Yegmen. It's used across multiple newspapers, so it must have been widely used slang at the time, but we weren't familiar with the term. Luckily, grammar bloggers Patricia O'Connor and Stuart Kellerman tracked down the origin of the term. They dug up a reference to a bank robber named John Yeag, who was active in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, with the first mention in print being at a bank industry conference in 1900. A report on bank robbers mentions $540 stolen from the Scandinavian American Bank in St. Paul, Minnesota on August 9, 1899 by professional sneak thieves was returned to the bank in an express package. When the money was returned, there was allegedly a note inside the package from John Yagen Co., which said, Having been hounded by the detectives all over the country, we concluded that the wisest thing to do was to make restitution. O'Connor and Kellerman didn't quite take this tall tale at face value, saying, This story about fearful outlaws returning their loot sounds too good to be true. We suspect that Pinkerton's National Detective Agency, which handled security for the American Bankers Association, may have embellished it. However, Pinkerton's is probably responsible for popularizing the use of the term Yeg and Yegman for a burglar or a bank robber, especially one who roams the country and cracks safes with explosives. In a September 15, 1901 interview with the New York Times, Robert Pinkerton, who ran the detective agency's New York office, said, This class of men have become very expert in the use of explosives. The stuff for blowing open saves is carried from place to place in rubber bottles or hot water bags. 
And if they are discovered by the police, the Yeggs claim that they are lung protectors, Pinkerton added. The Pinkerton agency certainly had good PR, and before long, Yeggman was a common term. As seen in the Boston Globe when they called the suspects in this case Yeggmen, or just Yeggs. A passerby recognized two men walking down South Street outside Monument Square in Jamaica Plain just after 7 p.m. on July 22nd as the shooters who had fled the saloon the night before. He flagged down patrolman Edmund Inglis and pointed them out, and Inglis immediately began chasing them. The Globe reports on the chaotic scene that followed. In an exchange of shots at the corner of South and Child Streets, patrolman Edmund Inglis took a bullet to his left leg. Nearby, Mrs. Mary Fallon was shot through the right side of her face while walking to the store with her child. The men fled down Child Street. In a field at the corner of Child and Lee Streets, Patrick McGinn and Edward Whiteman were both shot in their legs. The fleeing Yeggs turned right on Lee Street and then left on Keys, now McBride, toward Washington Street. At the intersection of Washington and Keys Streets, Boston Elevated conductor Thomas Moore was shot while stepping off his streetcar, suffering a broken leg. Here also, John Nolan, foreman of the Ross Twine factory, was shot in the right side, seriously injuring him. Again, if you're having trouble tracking this, we'll have a map in the show notes this week. The Globe continues, From there, the Desperados continued to Forest Hills Street, where they turned and ran for Forest Hills Cemetery. At the entrance to the cemetery, Herbert Knox, a watchman at the cemetery, was shot in the abdomen and later died at Emerson Hospital. So in the initial robbery, the group had shot three people, killing one of them. In this next chase, seven people were shot, including the cemetery security guard who was killed, a woman walking to the store who was hit with a stray round, and the cop who was wounded. What reason did the outlaws have to shoot at two men standing in a field or a streetcar operator? The vague language in the news coverage makes the modern observer wonder how many of those who were injured were caught in the crossfire. How many were hit by bullets fired by the pursuing police? When word was relayed from Station 13 to police headquarters that the outlaws had been chased into Forest Hills Cemetery, reinforcements began pouring in from around the city. Streetcars and horse-drawn wagons brought upwards of 250 armed patrolmen to Jamaica Plain. By this time, it was 8 p.m., and officials worried that it would be getting dark soon. Forest Hills is a very large cemetery encompassing about 225 acres, bounded by Morton Street, Canterbury Lane, and Walk Hill Street, with one side backing up into the neighborhood above Hyde Park Avenue. It was established in 1848 during the early days of the craze for garden cemeteries, which were meant as rural, park-like settings in which to bury and mourn the dead, rather than interring them in a local churchyard. Across the river in Cambridge, Mount Auburn had been the first garden cemetery in 1831, and Roxbury followed suit a few years later. As a garden cemetery, there were ponds, hills and valleys, and groves of trees, not to mention headstones, all of which would provide excellent cover for a group of desperate criminals to open fire from in the gathering darkness. Instead of sending officers into what might very well have been an ambush, commanders surrounded the park with cops and sent automobiles with mounted searchlights into the neighboring streets. If the gunmen were still in the park, the police wanted to make sure they'd be trapped there until morning. They would soon get their confirmation, as the Boston Globe reported. At 8.15 that night, three patrolmen were stationed on Walk Hill Street on the south side of the cemetery. 
One robber was seen approaching by the fence, and they drove him back with shots from their revolvers. An hour later, one of the men threatened to break out again, and again was driven back with shots. Patrolman Edward McMahon had been keeping watch on the west edge of the cemetery, in the back of 80 Woodlawn Street. At 9.20 p.m., he heard a noise at the cemetery fence, and when he came out into the light to investigate, he fell with a gunshot wound to the abdomen. His fellow officers returned fire in the direction of the shots, but with no apparent effect. The rest of the night was quiet, as the police waited for daylight before closing in on the Yegman. Before dawn on July 23rd, a force of about 200 police officers began combing slowly and methodically through the cemetery, trying to flush out the bandits. They moved in through the main gate and to the left, where they saw at least one man run over a hill and into a dry gully. As the officers pursued him, the man turned, fired his pistol at them, quickly reloaded, and fired a second magazine at them before taking cover behind a fir tree. The police responded with a protracted barrage that only slowed when it became clear that no more shots were coming from the suspect. A superintendent, a chief inspector, and one patrolman all ran forward and checked behind the tree. The suspect was sitting upright with his back against the tree. The next day's globe describes what unfolded then. Chief Watts grasped him about the throat while Patrolman O'Sullivan wrenched the revolver from the unresisting fingers. He's dead, the chief said, but the announcement made no impression upon the police. The force of armed men surged down the gully, frenzied with rage, crying, Kill him! Finish him up! Make an end to him! Get back! Get back! shouted Superintendent Pierce and Chief Watts, but the patrolman paid no attention to the command. They were for seizing the body and doing it violence. Inspectors Douglas and Wolfe jumped beside the superintendent and the chief inspector and joined them in resisting the frantic policemen. Chief Watts and the others struck the patrolmen, knocked them down, and fought them off for several minutes until the excited men regained their senses and dropped back. In a story on August 1st, 1908, the Globe reports on a statement by Commissioner O'Meara in response to criticism of the police handling of the siege in the cemetery. It noted that there were 238 policemen of all ranks on duty at Forest Hill Cemetery, not the 600 claimed by some. 149 men stood guard, while 89 entered the cemetery. Of those, it was determined that 67 fired 208 shots. After pointing out that the two missing fugitives could have left the cemetery before the police cordon was in place, the commissioner stated, I have studied the events of the night with greater interest, perhaps, than any other man can have, and I do not see wherein the plan could have been improved, even if the work were to be done again. Witnesses placed the dead man at the scene of the robbery in the saloon, as well as the first chase and shootout. He was soon identified as Edmund Gutman, an immigrant from Latvia. Police at first thought that they had killed the suspect, then became convinced that he had killed himself. However, evidence would later come to light that one of the other robbers had shot and killed Gutman after Gutman said he couldn't keep up with the group. A friend and fellow Latvian later identified as Pulka Murovitz killed him with a single shot so there would be no chance he could talk to investigators. 
the 208 rounds fired by the police had hit nothing. As the smoke cleared and the police got their tempers in check, it became clear that clues left at the scene pointed toward a mystery woman who might be their only link to the remaining shooters. Meanwhile, as things were beginning to settle down in the cemetery, police arrested a streetcar conductor named Hugh McDougall as he walked down Morton Street just outside the cemetery fence. A search found that he was carrying a revolver, but witnesses on the scene immediately attested that he hadn't been involved in the shooting. Nevertheless, he was arrested and processed, then released on bond the next day. At about the same time, a police officer named Buckley was patrolling the edge of Arnold Arboretum near South Street in the Arbor Way. He saw a suspicious man in the park and called out to him, but the man began running away from tree to tree. Buckley fired at him but missed, at which point he would later claim that the man brandished a revolver and shouted with a comical Italian accent, I'll get a you yet, before disappearing into the Arboretum. While investigating this incident, police got a report from two brothers who lived on nearby Jamaica Street. They had hung their jackets over chairs in their apartment kitchen and gone out for a while. When they came back, their jackets were gone, replaced by two coats that didn't belong to them, one of which was soaked in blood. While the police had been fighting over Gutman's body near the Morton Street side of the cemetery, they left the Canterbury Street side unguarded. The other two outlaws simply climbed over the fence went down Canterbury to walk Hill Street, then turned right onto Hyde Park Avenue before crossing the railroad tracks and slipping into Arnold Arboretum, where they encountered Patrolman Buckley. With Buckley's report of an encounter with an Italian man waving a gun, Italian-Americans all around the city were identified as possible suspects. Officers at South Station arrested Giuseppe DiVicio because they thought he matched the description of a suspect and because he ran when they chased him. Francesco Sperduto and Seppa Pascal had been arrested in Dedham the day before on unrelated charges, but were found to match descriptions of the escaped robbers. Despite sparse evidence, Sperduto, DeVicio, and Hugh McDougall would all stand trial for the murder of the night watchman at Forest Hills. All were acquitted after a key witness, when pressed on his identification of Sperduto, testified that he wouldn't want to swear to it because they, meaning immigrants, all look so much alike. Despite the early focus on swarthy Italians, sandy-haired Latvian immigrants soon became the suspects of the investigation. Edmund Gutman had been the foreman for a crew of gypsy moth exterminators working in the Middlesex Fells. Shown a picture of the crew, witnesses picked out two other Latvian-American workers, Peter Plod and Andrew Jacobson, as the men who led the police on the second foot chase across Jamaica Plain. Sources within the Latvian community said that they were members of a violent anarchist cell, of which Gutman had been the leader. Another member of the cell, Peter Swear, was said to have acted as a lookout on the night of the holdup in the bar, and might have given the warning that allowed the other three to escape Patrolman Butler during the first chase. We've discussed anarchism on the show before, because Sacco and Vanzetti were proponents of the philosophy, and because some people blamed anarchist terrorists for the Great Molasses Flood, though that turned out to just be bad engineering. In short, anarchists believe in a stateless society, or at least in a society in which all forms of hierarchy are leveled. As the old monarchies of Europe tottered on the edge of collapse, 
and labor unions and leftist organizations became more powerful around the world, anarchism drew more adherents. At the same time, anarchists began preaching the power of the propaganda of the deed, using violent actions to inspire more people to join the cause. Around the world, bombings and attacks on monarchs and nobles were attributed to anarchists. In the U.S., President McKinley was assassinated by anarchists in 1901, and bombings and other attacks would continue through the 1920s. One form of propaganda by the deed was known as expropriation, robbery and burglary carried out in resistance to the very concept of private property. Apparently, our band of radicals was trying to resist the private property rights of the Winterston and McManus Saloon by expropriating all the money that was inside it. Soon, police learned that Peter Plod had returned to Latvia, and they assumed that Andrew Jakobsen and Peter Swear had left the country as well. Dozens of Latvian Americans who had been rounded up for questioning were freed. For the investigation to continue, the cops had to focus on the clues found with Gutman's body in Forest Hills Cemetery. One was a lady's handkerchief, embroidered with the initials L.M., the other was a blood-stained letter, in what everyone at first assumed was Gutman's own handwriting. It was addressed to a Miss L. Morin, in care of a Mrs. Rosenwald, at an address near where the saloon had been held up. The Rosenwalds denied knowing Miss Morin, but other sources soon filled in the details. On July 26th, the Globe reported, Leontine Martin to whom the final note was addressed, was traced to 43 Union Avenue in Jamaica Plain. It was learned that Morin, 20 years old, was married, but living under her maiden name since her husband had gone west seeking employment. Upon locating her residence, the police went to 43 Union Avenue, searched the premises, and took an unnamed couple into custody. They were questioned at Station 13 and held for further interviews. Morin was not the woman found. Saying that Marin's husband had gone west in search of work may have been a euphemistic way to refer to a divorce or separation that society would have disapproved of at that time. The Globe describes the close relationship that developed between Peter Plaud, the actual letter writer, and Leontine Marin. Sometime after arriving in the U.S., the Plauds moved into 53 Jamaica Street, opposite the home of Christopher Spruta, where the outlaws later left their blood-soaked coats. At the time, the Marin woman was with them. Miss Marin was known within the Latvian community to be very fond of Peter Plod. Eventually, the Plods and Miss Marin moved to 3302 Washington Street near Green Street. Plod took the job with the Middlesex Fells Reservation Gypsy Moth crew and became close to Gutman and aligned with his violent anarchist principles. Plod and Andrew Jakobsen, another Latvian Gypsy Moth crewman, began defrauding installment stores buying furniture and clothing, and reselling it without first paying the full amount. In time, they came under pressure from agents of the sellers. Plod fled to Philadelphia, disappeared from sight, and Leontine Marin returned to her parents. When the heat died down, both Plod and Marin returned to Boston, where they allegedly fell back in with Gutman's anarchist cell not long before the saloon robbery. After missing her at 43 Union Ave and finding a new address abandoned, Police staked out her parents' house in Lawrence and searched a friend's apartment on Ruggles Street in Roxbury. Finally, after almost three months had passed, 
the BPD tracked Leontine Marin and her sister to New York City that October. The young women were working as dressmakers. With the help of the NYPD, the Boston police interviewed both Morins at their home on 170th Street. Both women were interrogated at length before the Boston Police Department announced that they were no longer persons of interest in the case and that the investigation into them would be dropped. When the police decided to clear Miss Morin, their last lead went cold and the case slowly faded from the headlines and from memory. If you'd like to learn more about the showdown at Forest Hills, check out this week's show notes. But wait, the story isn't over yet. It's not? No. The case went cold for almost six years, but then Boston police got a tip from the local Latvian community that the answer to the riddle of the missing shooters could be found in London. In 1914, Inspector Thomas Lynch of the BPD was assigned to travel to merry old England to investigate. Upon Lynch's return, the February 7, 1914 edition of the Newport Mercury gives some indication of how far the story departed from what everyone thought had happened. Notorious Jamaica Plain bandits have all been killed. Tragic deaths, in keeping with their lives of bloodshed, have come to three Boston bandits, according to an official announcement by the Boston Police Department. Edmund Gutman was killed in the cemetery, the police say, by his companions, because he felt himself unable, on account of physical weakness, to keep up the fight against the law. Polka Muravitz was shot in London and Fritz Vars was burned to death when the police destroyed a house in which a number of anarchists of that city had taken refuge. That is the police story, which does not agree, however, with contemporary versions of the Battle of Forest Hills, which stated that Gutman was shot to death while fleeing from the cemetery. The British Constabulary introduced Lynch to a London woman who had known two men named Fritz Vars and Pulka Muravitz. She told the inspector how Svars and Muravitz had bragged about evading the police in a chase and shootout somewhere in America. They hadn't told her where, but the details she provided matched the crime in Jamaica Plain exactly. Plod and Jacobson had been innocent all along, though perhaps Peter Swear, the lookout on the night of the robbery, was the same man as Fritz Svars. Unfortunately, Svars and Muravitz were dead. Muravitz, whose real name may have been George Gardstein, was from Poland, and Svars was Latvian. Both were anarchists, and both had been accused of terrorist activities in their home countries. And in January 1911, they were both killed in a shootout with police, following one of the most notorious crimes in London history. In December of 1910, the gang of Latvian criminals and revolutionaries led by Muravitz began casing a jewelry store in a Jewish neighborhood in East London for what they thought would be their biggest expropriation ever. Their target was at 119 Houndsditch, and the gang rented two storefronts on the Parallel Street, numbers 9 and 11, in the exchange buildings. On the night of December 16th, they used pneumatic drills to cut through the store walls that separated the rented storefronts from the back of the jewelry store. There were three or four men manning the drills, including Murovitz and possibly Svars, and a few more acting as lookouts. At about 11 p.m., a neighbor got annoyed by the loud sound of a pneumatic drill in the middle of the night and flagged down a passing police officer. 
The officer knocked on the door at 11 Exchange and exchanged a few words with the man who opened the door, who spoke limited English. The short conversation was enough to raise the constable's suspicion, and he called for backup. Before long, there were seven officers assembled in the alleys around 11 Exchange Place, all of whom were armed with billy clubs, as was standard for the time. At about 11.30, Sergeant Bentley knocked on the door of number 11 again. Moravitz answered, and when he went to get a fluent English speaker, Bentley walked inside, along with Sergeant Bryant and Constable Woodhams. When they were all inside, members of the gang opened fire with pistols, badly wounding Bentley, Bryant, and Woodhams. Bentley would die the next day, while Bryant and Woodhams would survive, but with permanent disabilities. The gang then ran out of the building, where more police officers moved in to arrest them. A Sergeant Tucker was immediately shot in the heart and killed, but Constable Choate managed to tackle Moravitz. Multiple members of the gang fired, hitting Choate at least 12 times. Choate was killed, but Moravitz was also wounded in the confusion. The gang carried him along, but the next day, Moravitz bled to death in his apartment. Later evidence would show that he had killed Edmund Gutman in Forest Hills Cemetery when Gutman couldn't keep up with Svars and him. Now he too had been killed by friendly fire. The doctor who had been attempting to treat him called the coroner, who in turn called in the police. This led to a chain reaction of events as police slowly unraveled leads on the case, identifying members of the gang and tracking down their hideouts. By New Year's Day 1911, the Metropolitan Police and London City Police had located the gang's hideout at 100 Sydney Street, not far from where the crime had taken place. On January 3rd, officers moved in. Just after midnight, they set up a perimeter around the block and began moving neighbors out of their homes to create a free fire zone. Soon, Svars and another member of the gang were alone on the block. At 7.30 in the morning, police knocked on the front door and began throwing stones at the windows to get the men's attention. As soon as they were awake, the Latvians began firing out the windows at the police, most of whom were only armed with revolvers. One sergeant was wounded, and the outgunned police force fell back under cover and began laying siege to the house. Scotland Yard called the Home Office, where Home Secretary Winston Churchill gave his permission to call in the military. A detachment of sharpshooters from the Scots Guard took up positions around the house at 10 a.m., where they were soon joined by the Home Secretary himself. A film crew from Pathé soon showed up to record the battle, making it one of the first breaking news events to be caught on film. The resulting newsreel footage and press photographs show Churchill's dour round face peeking from behind a wooden door, with police behind him holding shotguns and soldiers in front of him firing rifles. One account even says that a bullet went through his trademark top hat, but I would take that with a grain of salt. While he observed the fighting for hours, the only command Churchill gave was to the London Fire Brigade. At 12.30 p.m., it became apparent that 100 Sydney Street was on fire, and Churchill ordered the fire chief not to risk his men in trying to fight the fire while both sides were still shooting. Soon after the fire started, one of the conspirators stuck his head out of the window and was promptly shot in the face. Hours later, when the shooting had stopped and the fire was out, the body of the other shooter, Frank Svars, a.k.a. Peter Swear, was pulled from the rubble. 
The death of the last Jamaica Plain bandit had been personally directed by future World War II Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and the story would inspire two movies, Alfred Hitchcock's 1934 The Man Who Knew Too Much and the 1960 film The Siege of Sydney Street. Yet, somehow, the dramatic events in Jamaica Plain that led up to one of the most famous crimes in London history have mostly been forgotten. To learn more about the showdown at Forest Hills, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 079. This is one of those shows that's based on a single great article. In this case, we need to acknowledge a 2007 article for the Jamaica Plain Historical Society about the robbery and shootout by Mark Bulger. His article pulls together most of the sources we quote, lays out the narrative, and draws the connections to the anarchist movement and the siege of Sydney Street. We'll have a link to that article, as well as contemporary news coverage of the robbery and of Google Map we made showing how the battle unfolded. We'll also include a link to photos and British Pathé newsreel footage of the siege of Sydney Street. And of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. That's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. <laughs>